If any other human being in this country had done what's documented in the Mueller report, they would be arrested and put in jail. The majority leader doesn't want us to consider the mountain of evidence against the president. That is wrong. Uh, the Mueller report came out, no obstruction, no collusion, no nothing. It's a beautiful report. Uh, the Democrats cannot understand what happened. What a murderous North Korean dictator had to say about Joe Biden. And then doubling down in the news conference, I think that crossed a bright red line, uh, even for a president who delights in shattering political norms. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. So you like Slate and we like you. Let's spend the day together. On June 8th, Slate Magazine is going to hold its first ever Slate Day in New York City. A day of live podcasts, including Trumpcast, super energetic conversations and weird, fun experiences with Slate's biggest personalities. We're going to have First Lady of New York City, Sherlane McRae, television personality, Ms. Cracker. And on Trumpcast Live at 7 p.m., we'll have comedian and actress Aparna Nancherla joining me and Vicki Ward, who wrote that incredible book on the Kushners. We had her on the show. Also, we're going to have investigative reporters and comedians and a performance by Yola Tango. I love Yola Tango. So go to slate.com slash live to come for the whole day with an all-access pass or just grab tickets for your favorite show. We can't wait to see you at Slate Day. So naked emperor Donald Trump is in Japan meeting an actual emperor, one who wears clothes, no less, at the Imperial Palace in Tokyo. That's Japanese Emperor Naruhito and Empress Masako, who took time out of their dignified lives to face the grim responsibility of being in the presence of that vulgar infant, the American president. And they even had to pretend to enjoy it. (laughs) As I'm sure Trump and his skin mag model wife Melania know, Naruhito is the 126th Japanese monarch. He ascended to the chrysanthemum throne on May 1st after the abdication of his father, Emperor Akito. It's a fascinating story, and I'm sure Trump had read up on all of this, how Japan now begins the Raiwa era, which follows, of course, the Heisei era. Trump was head down in Japanese history on the flight. Of course, was he head down like a bloated, unwell, coral-colored grandpa having taken Ambien? In any case, he, of course, has not read one word and doesn't know one thing about Asian history, nor has he ever been asked one question about it, in spite of his daft, dangerous tweets to Kim Jong-un in North Korea, which endanger both our allies in South Korea and his hosts in Japan. While in Japan, and when the Ambien had half-lifted, Trump did manage to spite-tweet all kinds of stuff, rather than to pay dick-all worth of attention to his diplomatic mission in Japan. In trying to haze Joe Biden, he used some nice Russian talking points from the last election, stuff they dug up from 1994 to hit Hillary Clinton and now Biden. And while I'm not going to quote this Russian nonsense, it starts with the word super and is meant to imply that Democrats are the true racists. And whenever Trump does this, it's a sign of desperation. Oh, also, Trump pretended that Kim, Kim Jong-un, slagged off Joe Biden, which she didn't do. But Trump implied he'd reward Kim for saying playground stuff about Joe Biden, his political adversary. And thus, he composed a North Korea, if you're listening, tweet that all but solicited North Korean interference in the 2020 election. Trump is just a leaky duffel bag of sepsis. 
My guest today is Mimi Roca. She's a former federal prosecutor for the Southern District of New York, an MSNBC legal analyst, and lucidity itself. There's no one who gives it as straight as she does, and I'm so happy to have her back on the show. Oh, by the way, Mimi has some embargoed news that she can't tell us today, but she's going to sneak back in tomorrow with this big stuff. So tune in tomorrow, too. Mimi, welcome back to Trumpcast. Thank you so much for having me back, Virginia. As you know, I quote you all the time, way back when we talked about how Michael Cohen might make a good cooperating witness because he had been so cooperating, so sort of sycophantic to his boss, Mr. Trump, that he was then cooperative, would be cooperative with new bosses in the Justice Department. How do you think he ended up doing? It's been that long since we talked. So what did you think of Cohen's testimony and his would-be cooperation? You know, on the one hand, I think everything we said was right. I think that Cohen acted like many organized crime cooperators I've seen, where he, I mean, you could even see it publicly. He wanted everybody else's approval. I mean, he definitely went from Team Trump to Team America and literally meaning he wanted all of America to love him, you know, and mm. the FBI to love him and the SDNY to love him and Mueller to love him. And and he sort of tried to get that done, I think, by cooperating. The problem is he just doesn't, and this is just what I'm inferring from, you know, public evidence, he just couldn't totally trust the system, I think. Mm. And so instead of jumping in with two feet to make that happen, he jumped in with one foot. And he it just sounds like there were certain areas he was successful with Mueller. But with the SDMI, there was things he was holding back on. I don't know what they were. And I don't know that for sure. That's my inference. Mm-hmm. And as I've said a thousand times to cooperators, if you try and cooperate and don't go the full way, you're actually going to just make it worse for yourself, not better. And I think he kind of, I think it was more painful for him the way that he did it because he, he feels like he's been betrayed. He's like, well, what do you mean? I did cooperate. I did the right thing. And Mm. here I'm the one going to jail. And so now he's angry at team Trump and he's angry at team America. But the truth is he just didn't fully do it right. And he could have, and I think he, I think he wouldn't be in jail right now if that were the case, if he had done that. Do you suspect or infer that whatever he may have withheld from SDNY has to do with the finances, which are obviously extremely important to everyone right now? My total hunch, again, just, you know, like piecing together things and and knowing what cooperators usually have trouble with Mm -hmm. is that it's stuff that was historical. Mm. So about his work with Trump organization, but would have implicated him and or family members in additional crimes and people just understandably are nervous. They don't understand this idea that I have to implicate myself in more crimes to then end up getting less time because the information is what's valuable. And so if he put up roadblocks to that, you know, and he's still like, even as he's going into prison and from prison through his lawyer, he's saying, I have information, I have information. Well, I mean, for God's sakes, if he has information, we're probably past the point, but he should have given it to begin with. Yeah, if he has PDFs of all the tax returns, for example, he mm-hmm. could have emailed those to me or you anytime. <laughs> My DMs are open. <laughs> so the other big thing that's happened since we last talked is that we have Attorney General 
Bill Barr doing his ongoing damage to the rule of law. <laughs> and my guess is, in putting together this letter that I want you to explain to listeners, that marked an effort to disagree and really undo Barr's listless and deceptive summary of what went on in the Mueller report. So just tell us about that amazing letter that you had so many former federal prosecutors sign. Yeah, and it's almost a thousand now. I mean, we're very close to a thousand former prosecutors from all over the country, bipartisan people who signed, you know, served under Democrats, Republicans, career prosecutors, appointees, all different, you know, real mix. Yeah. Which I think is telling, you know, it's not just, you know, one district or one type of prosecutor, for example. You know, you're exactly right. I mean, the the letter, really, it's a statement. It's not a letter to anyone in particular, except, I guess, in theory, sort of the American public, because Barr's letter summary, which he says was not a summary, was so misleading, as I know you and your listeners well know by now, and Mm -hmm. in particular, in the way that it very dismissively, very shortly, and this, this hasn't been focused on, said, no, this is an obstruction. I mean, if you physically look at what Barr wrote, I think the part about obstruction and how he and Rosenstein decided there is, you know, decreed that there was no obstruction of justice by Trump is just one paragraph, really. And he lists, I think, four reasons. Um, I haven't actually looked at his summary in a little while, but I remember at the time just being stunned that, first of all, he had done this. But second of all, if you're going to do this, I mean, Mueller laid out, once we saw the report, we know that Mueller laid out just tons of evidence of obstructive conduct. You could, as we know, Barr would agree or disagree with some of Mueller's analysis, I guess. You know, there are arguments to be made. I think at the end of the day, there's no rational way to come out with any view other than obstruction has been committed, at least as to some of those acts. And Barr didn't even attempt to address those. He made it sound as if it was such an easy call. You can just brush this aside with a short paragraph and four very flimsy legal reasons. Mm -hmm. And I think so many prosecutors were so offended by that because it was, it's so blatantly, it's such a blatant oversimplification. You know, you, you can't, obstruction is a complicated crime. We've all been saying that for years. It's why I think a lot of us kept saying, let's see what the evidence is. Some of it's in broad daylight. And then when you see the report, you see this meticulous analysis that Mueller did. And while he didn't make the final call, I really don't think there's any way to read it without drawing the conclusion overall that he just didn't ultimately say it because he didn't want to accuse the president of a crime. And to prosecutors who have done so many obstruction cases, this conduct just screams obstruction. And I think, you know, just a lot, that's why you have so many people signing on. It just, it really flies in the face of everything that many of us have done for many years in many cases. Did you ever know of a case where a state AG or a DA took materials that prosecutors submitted to her or him and supplied such a misleading cliff notes? My experience would have been in the federal level with U.S. attorneys, and I've heard people, commentators making different analogies about, you know, is this like if when I was a chief, right? So I was chief of the organized crime unit. I was Mm -hmm. chief of the White Plains Division. If people who were under my supervision wrote a prosecution memo, I reviewed it, gave my input to it, and then we went to the U.S. attorney, like pre with it, and Mm -hmm. said, 
here you go, here's our recommendations. My view of it is that a U.S. attorney, if they're going to agree with the people who that work beneath them, the people who they um, oversee, the people who they trust every day to carry out important decisions, mm-hmm. um, then I can understand, you know, just sort of reading it and saying, okay, I agree. If they were going to disagree, mm-hmm. especially in an important case that these prosecutors and, and me as their supervisor had poured over for years, well, then... First of all, I would expect that U.S. attorney to then look at the underlying evidence, to really evaluate it in a de- as detailed a way as we did. Yeah. And that has been my experience is that, you know, someone like Barr, if he were going to just say, OK, you know what, I'm just going to pass on what Mueller did. I'm not going to intervene here. Then yeah. that would be one thing. But if he's going to intervene and give his own conclusion, which he claims he had to do, which, of course, he didn't, mm-hmm. and then summarize it in this way without looking at any of the underlying evidence without giving any actual he's never been called to the carpet for not giving any real analysis of his own where is his explanation of how he arrived at this i mean that one paragraph is that it yeah so that's my impression there's so much that is ominous about his summary and i think i said this to jed sugarman on the show a couple weeks ago i still get stuck on there's so much torque how he writes. And in the very beginning, he summarizes a little bit of how the report got started and then also the resources it used. And he goes on to lay out all the money that was spent, all the time that was spent, all the witnesses that were interviewed, and then goes quickly past, blows past the indictments that that the OSC secured. And that exact summary is the one that Trump and co. that Sarah Sanders uses It really, really feels like he sat down with a PR team or Trump's flax or, you know, Trump himself in advance of it. And I mean, maybe that's going too far and I don't want to allege something I don't know. But between the memo he wrote saying he was unlikely to find obstruction in any case unless there was a underlying crime, as he said, and then also just the way that summary is laid out, quotable, and the way that he used the word collusion in his press conference, Trump's favorite word, it's just very sinister. Yeah, no, it is. And I want to just add two things. One, going back to the former prosecutor letter for a second, and this ties into what I'm about to say. Oh, yeah. I hope that people understand that for, you know, nearly a thousand former federal prosecutors to sign on to something like this is really unprecedented. I mean, none of us do that lightly. It, it's, it's not something none of us feel it's our place to speak on cases that we aren't, you know, involved in. That's something whenever I'm asked to comment on other federal cases, I'm very careful because I'm very sensitive to the idea that federal prosecutors know what's in their case file. And sometimes only they know. Mm-hmm. The difference here is, as you say, Barr came out and made a statement and it was a very misleading statement. So I think that's why people, I'll speak for myself, that's why I felt comfortable signing on to this. Um, and, and it was so... Uh, just blatantly misleading. I'm actually now physically looking at the letter and and I'm right. There were three paragraphs on obstruction and only one of them was substantive actually explained. I mean, he barely even attempts to explain his decision. He tries to say, well, you know, none of this, you know, my decision, Mueller's decision, you know, wasn't my decision wasn't about the fact that it's just the president. I'm not relying on that. And of course, he has to say that because of that memo he wrote ahead of time. And so he has to 
sort of make it look like, you know, no, I didn't predetermine this. Yes, that's and right. Yet you can't really come to any other conclusion. And then the last thing I would say about it is, you know, why are we still talking about this? Why are you and I talking about why are so many people mm-hmm. still talking about what Barr did? Because it had such an enormous impact in mm-hmm. almost everything that's happened afterwards has been futile in terms of getting the real story and the real truth out. And that's been, you know, and I know a lot of us on Twitter, you know, talk about this. That's to me, the most frustrating thing is that the narrative got set by Barr really early on by Barr and Trump, as you say, whether it was coordinated or not, I don't know, but they certainly had the same narrative, the Trump people and Barr of no collusion, no obstruction, even Mm -hmm. though, you know, Mueller went to great lengths to say, I didn't decide anything on collusion. And I'm not saying there's no obstruction. Mm -hmm. That narrative was set and it got slightly walked back later. I think there was enough people out there in the press saying, no, 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 that's not what Mm -hmm. it says. Mm -hmm. But it's been almost impossible to undo that. And I feel like it, it has made the Democrats and people who just forget your party, people who want the facts and the truth to be out there. It's made them play catch up now ever since the bar mm-hmm. letter. And mm-hmm. that's just a real travesty. It's like a judge announcing the decision before, you know, all the facts were admitted into trial. This letter, this memo that nearly a thousand former federal prosecutors have signed says that all of you agree there is consensus that you saw enough material to indict on obstruction. Yeah. And I mean, I, again, I don't know if people appreciate how hard it is to get like five prosecutors to agree on anything, yeah. let alone a thousand um, or close to a thousand. Uh, you know, we, we can sit and debate the law and facts for hours. That's been my experience. So yes, that's how overwhelming the facts are. And I mean, I can give you just the the sort of best examples, quote unquote, in my mind. Um, And, you know, they're they're the ones for the most part that we mentioned in that statement, but especially the attempt to fire Mueller, which was so clearly an attempt to get the investigation derailed because he didn't know where it was going. He couldn't control it. He saw Mm -hmm. it coming at him and his family and his businesses. It didn't matter if there was an underlying crime that he knew or thought could be proven. There was enough that he was afraid the investigation would uncover. And frankly, It was enough that he knew that it would uncover the Russian interference, which even if he wasn't a conspirator to, he still was, and to this day, actively denies because he doesn't want anyone to think that that's how he got elected or that it had any role in him getting elected. And that's enough. That's a corrupt motive. So it's that attempt, especially through John McGahn, who resisted it. He pressured him. I mean, the word pressure is used to describe Trump's actions with respect to McGahn. And then on top of that, when the truth starts to come out, he actually, you know, whatever word you want to use, asks, orders, instructs. I mean, if it's an ask from the president, it might as well be an order. Uh, an order. I mean, that's mm-hmm, back mm-hmm. to the organized crime analogy. Yep. Um, and he asks him to fabricate evidence, a letter to the file. I mean, you just you don't get more blatant than that. I mean, there are people who are convicted of obstruction for asking a witness to take a vacation. You know, yeah, I mean, this wow. is really blatant stuff. And then the other part that I would point to as as really um, shocking conduct, I think, and and we talk about it in the statement. So many prosecutors agree is the. Um, attempts to get witnesses not to cooperate. Again, very mm-hmm. mob-like tactics, sort of 
in, you know, the, the praising, the inducements, maybe not explicit, but doesn't need to be to Cohen, to Manafort, mm-hmm. to Flynn through lawyers. And then once he sees that they are cooperating, like with Cohen, the attempts at intimidation, like the tweet the night before Cohen was about to testify to Congress, for example. Yeah. So those, I mean, there are many more, but like if I had to boil it down to sort of the most explicit acts that Mm -hmm. I don't see how you can just brush off um, and that cry out as I would go to trial on these, you know, in a heartbeat. Those are the ones. Let's go to Cohen. BuzzFeed reported that he had testified that Trump directed him to lie. It now seems increasingly true that he did testify that Trump directed him to lie to the Office of the Special Counsel. He said in his testimony before Congress that Trump talks in code, as you said, this kind of mob language. I thought Michael Cohen gave a pretty good example of what that code might sound like. He had addressed one of his interrogators saying, well, if I say, isn't that the greatest tie you've ever seen? It's almost impossible to say, no, it's not. I mean, what does that even look like? So you've got this kind of runaway train where he's telling Cohen that the dates are these particular dates. Get it. Stick to this account of the timeline of the Moscow project. And that Cohen took that to mean he should restate that timeline, the false timeline, when he went to Congress. We already know, and it doesn't seem like anybody disagrees anymore, that Trump said to Comey, and this is where I want your opinion as someone who's prosecuted the mob, said to Comey, I hope you can see your way clear to letting Mike Flynn go. Nobody seems to dispute that he said that at the time when that first came out. I think Trump's son said, hope is just hope. He just has a fond hope. He's just a hopeful guy. That doesn't really mean anything. But now we don't say that that didn't mean anything. We've blown past that. But suddenly the OSC and Trump have decided that the code is too complicated to make a judgment about whether or not he was suborning perjury from Michael Cohen. Why did you bring up mob language and mob hierarchies around Michael Cohen and maybe this particular speech act? Yeah. And I mean, look, the mob is what jumps to mind, but you could even take a sort of a little bit more sanitized analogy, like, you know, the head of a corporation. I mean, it's about someone who's in power. Yeah. And people who report to someone in power. Right. Yeah. And how that power gets exercised. I mean, so much of this obstruction section is about Trump trying to use the power that he has over people, whether it be McGahn, Comey, Cohen, you know, and, and with each of them, he has a different relationship given their positions, right? With McGahn, it's that he, at least Trump viewed him as this lawyer who's supposed to be loyal to him. McGahn, thankfully, for whatever other issues he has, at those moments in time, did not view himself that way. He understood that his loyalty was to, you know, the White House position um, and not to Trump the person. With Comey, uh, Trump's power was that, it, as Trump saw it, he could hire and fire him. Mm-hmm. And indeed, that, that was his power. Um, again, Comey, at the end of the day, was not going to be dictated by that. But there could have been other FBI directors who would have been more vulnerable to that pressure and that power. Mm-hmm. Cohen, the, the power is the most mob-like because it's harder to define. It came more from that sense of loyalty of Cohen having been with him and around him. And, you know, he, he just counted on Cohen being indebted to him for 
probably, you know, whatever it is that Trump has given him his life in his life, which is feeling like he belongs someplace and financial as well, I guess. And so that kind of power, that kind of, it doesn't have to be spelled out. It doesn't have to be explicit. Mm -hmm. It is the the mob is very good at it, but they're not alone in it in, in using, you know, very few words to communicate what that message is. Yeah. And you don't have to be sort of, you know, indoctrinated in the mob to understand what that means. And I, I think with Cohen, you know, so much of why all the reporting was so confusing is, again, I'm inferring just based on all the different reporting back then. And now, Mm-hmm. To, in Cohen's mind, Trump told him to lie, period. Mm-hmm. You know, it because it didn't need to be explicit, because they have this unspoken language. That is probably, it sounds like now, not literally what Cohen said, because it wasn't so much spelled out as much mm-hmm. as communicated to him. I think that's something that prosecutors rely on all the time, you know, because we, we rarely have explicit language about anything criminal, right? Because most yeah. people are smart enough not to communicate it. I think Mueller recognized that. I think, however, in putting out that statement back at the time of the reporting of, you know, the Cohen saying supposedly that Trump instructed him to lie, I think Mueller was being clear that those weren't the words that were used. But then I think people got a misimpression the wrong way, which is, and he didn't tell him, you know, to lie in any way, which also isn't the case. It's somewhere in the middle as facts like this often are. They're complicated, they're great, but the inferences you can draw, and that's what prosecutors rely on all the time, are that Trump wanted Cohen to go with this timeline, knowing Trump knowing it was false. You know, in a crazy way, Michael Cohen says, I know the code because I've known Trump this long. It seems that the office of the special counsel both knows and doesn't know the code, or at least they have an interest in being especially cautious, calling it asking someone to lie, calling it suborning perjury because we know what that means, and that's obstruction. So they're cautious to say that's what it is because he's the president and they can't indict him. Or Yes, they were not going to petition to indict and they didn't. But that particular code is something that could be understandable to the constituencies of those in Congress that, you know, I don't know, I'm going to try this out on you. The Me Too movement and even this college admission scandal, and there's been one after another kind of the scandals in the priesthood and the church, these just abuses of power that are almost proxy and practice for understanding how the powerful get their subordinates to do things and act against their interests. I've just been listening. There's a podcast on something called Gangster Capitalism. Uh, The first season is about the college admission scandal, and you have... Rick Singer, the college advisor, talking to these rich clients about how he's going to get their kids into school. And it is all innuendo. Right. And even later when he has to, he's wearing a wire and he has to get them to agree that that's what they've done so that he can have it on tape. You know, he says the fact that we bribed the coach, he gives the coach's name because this is he's working for prosecutors. The fact that we bribed a coach to get your daughter into college. Well, you're not going to want to report that to the IRS. And I don't know if you've heard these tapes. They do reenactments of them. But the client. So this is the Felicity Huffman figure says, like, right, of course. But is she really saying that's what happened? I mean, when you're committing serious crimes, there's not a conversation like, I'm going to bring the heroin to your house and you'll get the guns, right? I mean, it just... And that seems like something we all understand. I mean, even as some of Harvey Weinstein's and other Me Too victims were spelling out what happened, the communication is never... 
as exact as you want it to be. And yet we all know who's anyone who's worked for, you know, if someone who abuses his or her power knows that those kind of conversations are predicated on a power arrangement. And, you know, I almost think if this were submitted to the people, if we just knew Michael Cohen's exact testimony and your way of getting this out in this letter is a great way to do it, the pressure from just average readers of the Mueller report and some of the surrounding materials and testimony would be more clear than Barr. Exactly. Right. Like if you took the Barr letter out of it and you just had the Mueller report come out and come out and, you know, not everyone's going to read it, but a lot of, you know, some people would, some people wouldn't. And then you'd have people on TV analyzing it. People would argue about it, but I think way more people would come to their own say like, yeah, of course he was trying to get him to lie. Right. (laughs) Yeah, we've all been there. sense. I mean, it's the same reason why you're able to explain this to juries in trials all the time. Because as you say, we almost never have direct evidence, right? We don't have someone laying out, you know, do the crime, (laughs) whatever it is. You have innuendo, you have inference, you have, you know, call it a code, call it whatever you want. Mm -hmm. But juries, you know, are instructed, use your common sense. And frankly, you know, they do. And that's what I mean about Barr not having sort of been, you know, called to the carpet. Like, how does he get from the facts in the report to his conclusion? He he has never yet to this day, because it didn't happen in the hearing so far, he's not been forced to explain it. And I don't think he could, is my point. Like, I, I mean, I would really love to hear him be questioned in a way where he really had to try and justify what he's, his conclusion not in legal terms, because that's what he, he's claiming. It's not because he's the president. Mm-hmm. And I just don't see how you get there. And then the, the last thing I would say is, look, Mueller, there is no question that Mueller was very deferential in this entire report, both in Section 1 mm-hmm. and even in Section 2. You know, he it's not just that he won't accuse Trump of a crime. He draws wherever there's inferences to be drawn in someone's favor or mm-hmm. not. He he try, he draws them in favor of Team Trump. I mean, that's the irony of this being called a witch hunt. Mm-hmm. And understandably, we can't really fault Mueller for that. I mean, this is the president of the United States and it's that office, whether, you know, however you feel about this person and he is being conservative. There are other prosecutors who would have taken a, you know, a different view of the facts, I think. That's partly because, well, largely you say because he's president and he says as much in the report, but also because this behind closed doors thing wouldn't allow enough of the adversarial system to convince a jury beyond a reasonable doubt or meet the standard of guilt beyond a reasonable doubt or right. sorry, premise, premise to indict beyond a reasonable doubt, which is also an extremely high standard. I mean, why do you think he did that? And would you have done that? Well, I mean, that is basically the standard in the U.S. attorney or justice manual for bringing charges. I mean, it's phrased a little bit differently. And we say this in the letter, in the prosecutor statement. I think we we quote it. I want to remember the exact language. But the essence of it is, are you likely to be able to prove this beyond a reasonable doubt? If not, don't charge it. I guess what I'm saying is I don't think the standard is necessarily wrong. Yeah. It's more that I think the decision about whether or not you could prove some of this stuff beyond a reasonable doubt, he's very deferential. For example, with respect to the campaign finance crimes against Donald Jr. Yeah. What do you find most galling about his reticence? Like, is is there a moment, you know, Jed Sugarman was the first, I think, Lisa, I knew to come out and say, 
Mahler was cowardly. Like, we're not expected to say that. You don't have to go that far. But was there a moment that you just thought, what is he doing? Yeah. And I mean, to be clear, I, and not just because I don't want it, but I actually don't think it's about cowardice. I mean, you can look at it completely the other way, that, mm. that maybe Mueller thought, you know, I could say this is criminal. I could say this looks, this act looks like intent, but I'm not going to because I'm talking about the presidency and I know this will not be a popular view, but I don't care. I'm doing what I think is right. Yeah. Um, I, yeah. I mean, that to me is sort of in Mueller's head. I, I understand that it's confusing and unclear and, and I'm not, I'm not saying Mueller, anything about this was perfect, but I, I don't necessarily think it was cowardly. I, I think it was conservative though. Um, yeah, I if, think, if, that if he's not going to be able to bring indictment, he shouldn't be able to. It's something I, I think I, I feel like I read marriage advice somewhere that said never bring up divorce, even the heat of an argument, unless <laughs> you're going to do it. You know, right. because, so you've already set the parameters. We are not going to indict. We are not going to divorce. So let's have the argument within those. And, and that means not saying this is an indictable offense, right. but I can't indict. And he was very careful to spell out that loop. That right. If if you can't do it, then there's something nasty or I don't I don't know quite what unfair. I think unfair. It's down to fairness. I think yeah. he saw it as as the fair thing is if I can't indict and have this play out in the system where there'll be a full airing of the facts and the evidence and the proof, then I'm I'm not going to say I would indict. And again, you can agree or disagree. I mean, there's you know it, it, it's definitely not ne- the only way to have gone. I don't I think it's problematic. But I understand it. And I, in some ways, think that somewhere at some point in time down the road, when we're looking back at this, it will help the justice system recover from this politicalization that Mueller did manage to stay so above the fray. In the short term, it's not necessarily helpful. But I think down the road, there'll be this person who really stayed in the middle. Yeah. So there are, aside from just urging everyone to read the report, that's only going to go so far. And there have been intimations that not even close to everyone in Congress has read the report, as Justin Amash, you know, seemed to have decided. Uh, I think someone today said it seems like only Elizabeth Warren and Justin Amash have read the report. <laughs> the, the point is, there's something in there for everyone. And everybody should read the report. But short of reading the report, there are three summaries that I think do well by it that are very quick. One of them is is the letter. And I think we'll put that in the show notes. You have it posted on Medium, is that right? And yes. somewhere else. Okay, so we'll, we'll put your letter. Then also, I think Adam Schiff's I don't think that's okay speech is just a very simple way of spelling out the volume one offenses. So the collusion, which, you Absolutely. know, what's weird is it is collusion. Yeah. Nobody disagrees with the facts in what Adam Schiff said. So absolutely right, right. Even the Republicans sitting there didn't. They just, they didn't. I yeah. know. Nobody says, "Oh, that conversation was about adoptions," or everyone would have taken that meeting. All that Hope Hicks stuff is just gone now. They say, "Yes, that's exactly what happened." And I almost want to hear some Republicans say, "You know what? I do think it's okay. I think this is hardball. I'm sympathetic exactly. to Russia's ends. I would feel." It would be such a relief to hear some Bill Barr person say, yep. you know, Adam Schiff has the facts right. Volume one has the facts right. But you know what? That's the way the game is played. Right. <laughs> would, that would be such a relief. 
The third one, I think, is Justin Amash's thread where he says these are impeachable offenses. You know, this is a representative from Michigan and that thread unroll we can also put in the show notes because I think those three things are really all all anyone needs because they're from people who've clearly read the report and nobody disagrees with the facts in your letter or in those two other summaries. I agree with you. And that is one of the things that I and other people have been saying now is, okay, so so focus on those facts. Like when when you have when the media has a Republican congressman on who says, you know, no, it wasn't obstruction or no, he shouldn't be impeached. Confront him with some of the facts. Say, well, how can you say that? you know, asking Don McGahn to lie yeah. um, and create a false document isn't a crime. And, yeah. and force people to actually explain it as opposed to just accepting these, the platitudes is the wrong word, but accepting these these broad-based statements that are not based on fact. Get back to the facts. And part of the problem is that I think both Congress and the media, everyone has gotten so caught up in this discussion about the legal battle now over yes. how to get out the report and the testimony, everything that we've lost sight of the facts. And, you know, there was an interesting example of this like hmm. two weeks ago, I think, when there was some reporting, breaking news, you know, Trump and his lawyer, Trump's lawyers asked Flynn, uh, tried to get Flynn not to cooperate. And there was that uh, because Mueller had written the in the 5K letter, in the cooperation letter for Flynn, they had sort of detailed more about that effort to get Flynn not to cooperate and how Flynn had given them the, the voicemail, the recording and all that. And this was two weeks ago and it was people, you know, breaking news on MSNBC and CNN and everyone was tweeting about it. And then about an hour later, people realized, wait a minute, we already know this. This is in the Mueller report. Mm -hmm. And I forget now, I looked it up. I think it was page 120. It it sticks out of my head, but it's definitely in there. Yeah. And, you know, there were a few new facts, certainly the facts about someone from Congress being involved. There were definitely new facts. But the overall idea that Trump and his people tried to get Flynn not to cooperate is 100 percent in the report. Now, Mueller doesn't dig into it because he says, And here's another example of Mueller being very conservative. He says, I'm not going to go question the lawyer. This was Mm -hmm. the lawyer and I'm not going to question him. Well, I think he could have. There's an area where I I actually was like taken aback at why wouldn't you that there's a crime fraud exception to the attorney client privilege. And this would clearly seem to meet it. But Mueller didn't want to go down that road. Congress Mm -hmm. can, but Mueller didn't want to. But I thought this was all just a really interesting example of you know, there's so many bad facts in the report, but when you focus on one at a time, it's yeah. stunning. Like, whoa, they did what? Right. But no one's been able to do that since the bar letter, I feel like. It's, yeah, a far cry from but her emails, like something that we don't know to be a crime and the facts don't back it up. It is somewhat astounding that anyone who's read the report it seemed so self-evident, and I don't know if I'm going to use this phrase right, but so much of the conduct, especially in volume two, seemed malum in se, right? Like wrong in itself, that I think that's what Schiff was trying to get at with the not okay. Yeah. And yet we just didn't anticipate that people would not read it and confront the facts. And so I think these summaries are really, really useful. I also hope that individual members of Congress aren't embarrassed to say they haven't read it yet, but they finally, you know, went through it on some holiday weekend and now have something to say about it because it is, it's a page turner and just the facts are so jaw-dropping, the quotations, the dialogue. And again, no one disputes the facts. 
Yeah. And also, I mean, look, it is really dense. I mean, Congress, they could you, you could take any one committee and divide it up and say, hey, you focus on this chapter. You focus on this. And, it, you know, it's a little hard to read in isolation, but you you can you can yes. focus on it and then have each person of Congress sort of do what Schiff did and say, you know what, in this report, here's what I found shocking just to get sort of more useful summaries out there to people, because it is a lot. I mean, who, who, you know, people outside of Congress, outside of the sort of legal analysts or political analysis, who has time to, to read the whole thing? I mean, yeah. I think they should, but I, I do understand it. And it's Congress's job now, I think, to help get the, the facts out there. Amash, as a libertarian, has a particular angle. Schiff, running the House Intelligence Committee, has his angle on volume one. I think our mutual friend Karen Schwartz says it's like figuring out what Hogwarts house you're in is figuring <laughs> out whether you're a volume one or a volume two person. Right, so exactly. intelligence and national security folks should really be teasing out what's very dangerous that's surfaced in that first volume. And the you know federal prosecutors like yourself should tell us more about what qualifies as obstruction because it can get complicated. I think that's been great. I want to bring up something. I don't know if you've seen this, and if you haven't, we can move fast. But there's a report in The Guardian today, every grain of salt, but that Michael Wolff's book, also many grains of salt necessary, although... Fire and Fury, his first book, has been really borne out. I mean, you know, it's just been one book after another, including by Bob Woodward, that have confirmed much of what he said in there. But Michael Wolff's book, The Guardian has a copy of it, says that Mueller, Mueller's office did draw up uh, three indictments on obstruction against Trump. Now, the Office of the Special Counsel says, and it's like, oracle runic <laughs> sphinx like way no you know no the documents do not exist something right. like that so you know we can't say that it was confirmed by the office of the special counsel but we never totally know what peter carr their spokesman means by things like the documents don't exist what do you make of this yeah i mean i did i, I did read that and um i i do take it with a grain of salt but i actually thought that carr's statement was interesting because, you know, as in the few other times he's spoken up, it wasn't a, you know, sort of blanket denial. It just spoke to those documents don't exist, right? Yeah. Meaning the three indictments, which without more, I don't totally understand why there would be three indictments, even if there were indictments. Mm-hmm. So something about the reporting is incorrect. Is it that the whole thing is incorrect or mm-hmm. just that the number is incorrect, most likely, I'm, I'm, you know, with the caveat that I am speculating based on what I know from being a prosecutor and what I'm seeing in the Mueller report is more likely, I mean, we had some other reporting that other people who worked on Mueller's team, you know, have said, this would have been an indictment, Mm -hmm. but for the fact that he's the president, which is exactly what our former prosecutor statement says, because that's just so undeniable, unless you're Bill Barr. And so probably it's possible that it's not about there were three indictments drawn up, but maybe someone on the team said, let me take a crack at what an indictment would look like. Yes. You know, and and more or here's the prosecution memo internally laying out, you know, how an indictment would be drafted. But Mueller has made pretty clear that, you know, he wasn't going to bring an indictment for this fairness reason. Is it possible that at some point in time he 
considered not doing that, that he felt this conduct was so bad that he was going to, maybe. And so maybe there were drafts written up. At the end of the day, while that is, you know, again, sort of a flashy talking point that people will debate whether it's true or not true, and we'll never really know probably. And and it, it is important in the sense that it gets people to focus on it. But at the end of the day, nothing changes the idea that the facts laid out in the Mueller report could 100% make an indictment and could go to a trial and a prosecutor would undoubtedly win a conviction. And that's that's what our statement says. And that's not going to change, you know, regardless. Yeah. So people have disagreed somewhat. It seems plain as day that the report, while not offering an indictments, is an impeachment referral. Well, what do you think? Do you think it's it's high time? Are you with Kamala Harris and, and Elizabeth Warren and lots of others to start an inquiry, I mean? Or do you yeah. think that we should still gather string and wait till, say, those taxes drop or something else that would really turn the tide to get enthusiasm for impeachment, even if it dies in the Senate? I'm of the view now that I think it's time for an inquiry. And you know, I say this as some, I really do have great respect for Nancy Pelosi. I have wanted to just, I mean, I trust her political instincts. I mean, that that's my personal view. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the other hand, I think what she's misreading, or, or maybe not, maybe this is intentional, is this idea that it's ever going to change without a full airing of the facts. And right now, there is no other way to get the facts out other than through hearings, whatever you call them. Mm-hmm. Here's the problem, though, right? And and this is a point to make. I think most people understand this, that calling actually starting a formal impeachment inquiry is not going to be a magic wand that will solve the problem of the stonewalling. Um, You still need subpoenas and enforcement of subpoenas. And I think you will still have much of the same problem with getting witnesses and facts. However, I think there will be some witnesses for whom you know, maybe the Hope Hicks who's having, you know, her existential crisis, um, maybe Don McGahn even, you know, that it would be harder for them to sort of say, well, no, not going to do this if it's a true impeachment inquiry. Mm -hmm. And I certainly think even though the courts so far have ruled in favor of the Democrats oversight capabilities without impeachment, you can't count on that with every judge and it will give another tool. It would also pretty much automatically, not automatically, but it would really strengthen the argument in terms of unredacting um, parts of the report that are redacted for 6E, which I don't think are a lot, but there are some. So there's definitely Mm -hmm. sort of more tools that it would put at disposal. I think it would focus people on it more as opposed to the legal battle. Yeah, (laughs) Um, Yeah. And that in and of itself would be important. And so I just, you know, and, and frankly, like you were saying earlier, I think we're at the point that if you call it an impeachment inquiry, the people who are trying to blow this off as no big deal are going to be forced more to explain why that is. And the more that those people have to explain that, I think the more impossible people, the more unreasonable that those positions will sound. Of course, there'll be people who will always, you know, just accept whatever somebody says about on Trump's behalf. But there Mm -hmm. are people in the middle who will say, wait a minute, that doesn't make sense. What? Yes. (laughs) So that's my view. And we'll get it spelled out. I mean, if they see this as declining to, they see the Mueller report as just declining to indict, it would be nice to see an affirmative 
not declining to impeach. Right. And then we can change the conversation to a conversation about the facts, which I really, really think is necessary. You know, and that's what you did with the letter is have people trained in reading facts read this thing. That's what Justin Amash did by, you know, what I love about his thread is the credit he gives. You know, most of us just blast out there as solo pundits and write thread arias. But he spends time saying he talked to his staff. They read over the report. Mm -hmm. That is the conversation that hopefully some people will have at July 4th barbecues, because I would like to hear a defense on the facts. Exactly. And and the, the contrast between Amash coming out with this now two detailed threads, and I and I think he's, yes. he's done it elsewhere, too, but he he really provides support by it. And then, you know, the next day on CNN, you had Mitt Romney and he just said, I have a different view. I think it's not obstruction. No explanation, right. no justification, which is on the one hand, the fault of the interviewer for not pressing him, but also because frankly, I don't think he, you know, I, I would have loved to have heard him try to justify that the way that Amash justified his de- decision. Yeah, yes, I agree. And that's what everyone should be asked. What exactly, which of these 12 episodes do you think is definitely not obstructive? Right. I'm just curious. And why? Yeah, and why? <laughs> to yeah. show which your work. element is missing? <laughs> totally. And I think Romney had this like word salad sentence in there that I was making fun of on Twitter. But for a reason, he said something about, you know, the the elemental. I mean, he, he wasn't oh, yes. making sense because he didn't know what he was talking. He was just putting words together yeah. without having to explain them. And, you know, it's like a kid, right, who, you know, they can say it, they can parrot it. Yeah. When you ask them to explain it, they, they can't. It is interesting that it's Kamala Harris and Elizabeth Warren, distinguished lawyers who are the ones saying impeachment and, and you know, businessmen like Mitt Romney less so. Um, Justin Amash, also a University of Michigan law school graduate, no slouch. He was on the Law Review. It is sort of interesting to, you know, find out who the lawyers in the equation are out of Schiff, of course. So last thing I had for you, how do you sort of summarize things to the people around you? You know, the state of play. I mean, I basically say, look, we have this report that lays out clear obstruction, um, both in a criminal sense and in an impeachable sense, clear Mm -hmm. abuses of power by the president while he was in office, Mm -hmm. and that lays out, you know, conduct that absolutely should not be acceptable um, with respect to how the campaign was conducted in May at least, you know, I'm going to respect Mueller's determination that it wasn't enough to be a criminal offense, any one particular act, but when you take it all together, you see this campaign, including Trump, you know, trying to find ways to use um, foreign, certainly foreign cutouts for foreign powers um, mm-hmm. to to damage uh, their opponent. And unless we want this to be business as usual, which I don't think we do because it really seems to present, you know, real national security risks, then that, that, that is something we need to also focus on and that everybody just needs to get back to focusing on those facts and Democrats need to find a way to get those facts in digestible ways out to the American public and not unfortunately count on them reading the report. And I, 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 I'm going to be a little naive for a moment, but I do believe that the more people you can get to understand those facts in both parts, the more people will understand that this is not acceptable in our president. I am totally persuaded. I mean, (laughs) I'm definitely the choir, but I'm more persuaded than ever. 
Mimi Roca is a former federal prosecutor for the Southern District of New York, an MSNBC legal analyst and a great friend of Trumpcast. Thanks for being here, Mimi. Thank you. It was great talking with you. That's it for today's show. What did you think? Find us on Twitter, twitter.com, and share your thoughts. We can take it. I'm at page 88. The show is at Real Trumpcast. And then go to that URL bar and type slate.com slash Trumpcast plus. Seize the day to become a Slate Plus member. Get all of Slate's podcasts ad-free for only $35 for the first year. That is Zlotties a day. Look them up, Zlotties. Go to slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus. Our show today was produced by Melissa Kaplan with help from Merritt Jacob. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. Trumpcast.